It's good to be together, isn't it? And uh, looking forward to a few weeks from now when this place will be full with students again and uh, we'll be worshiping all together. I want to share this morning from um, a few verses in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, familiar verses to us, verses 14 to 16. Jesus speaking, saying, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. don't know if you noticed that uh, our brother Colin Owen is back from uh, his trip out east. He just flew in last night from uh, Newfoundland where he was a part of the uh, wedding party, the wedding of Dave Kenty and Ashley Baker, Mr. and Mrs. Kenty now. And uh, I haven't had opportunity yet, I just saw Colin briefly this morning, but I haven't had opportunity to debrief him from his latest cross-cultural adventure. Although he did, he did quite uh, briefly show me that uh, he received a certificate that makes him an honorary Newfie, um, given the participation in the wedding and uh, what, kissing the cod? Um, probably a few other things. I can remember uh, several months ago now, uh, sitting down in our office as a number of us were talking with Ashley Baker and she was anticipating her wedding and uh, thinking about some of the members of the wedding party that would be coming. Colin was going to be in the wedding and if you know Colin or don't know him, he's at the back there, wave Colin, uh, you'll see that Colin is Chinese. Um, and two other members of the wedding party, uh, Rebecca is of a Korean heritage and Chantal is of a Caribbean heritage and she is as black as black can be. And Ashley was thinking ahead to having these three members in particular both as a part of the wedding, but just hanging out in her uh, fairly small town, Newfoundland, for the days preceding the wedding. And she was thinking of the excitement that would be around these folk. These folk were going to be a very obvious, visible minorities in that context of Newfoundland. And she knew that they were going to be the talk of the town, um, a very different part of Canada, still Canada, but a very different context than what we share here. Have you ever been a visible minority? The first experience for my family was when we moved to Zambia, and particularly as we spent our first six months living in a village called Limalunga. Limalunga was the Litunga, the king of the Valozi people's capital, and so he had his uh, palace in that village. And we were given permission as the very first uh, white family to live in that village. They called us Makuas there, a uh, similar term to Muzungu that's used in other parts. Basically means white people. Um, the exact definition is those who run around in a circle. Um, they created a new English word for Makuas or Muzungus, and that word is Movius. They say, you Makuas, you're so Movius. You're just always running around in circles. We moved into this village as the first white people, and you can imagine that um, we were a novelty. Um, 
We were very obviously a visible minority, my wife and I and our three-and-a-half-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, and five-week-old uh, uh, children. And as we moved into that small community, um, we were not only a novelty, we were a source of entertainment. And children would, for hours on every day that we were there through those six months, sit just on the perimeter of that property in which we were living, and they would watch us. And that was their entertainment for the day and week and months that we lived there. And they watched everything about us uh, with great curiosity. And everywhere we, we traveled in that small village, that community, they would trail behind us, and they would announce our coming. They would say, Makua, Makua, Makua. And everybody knew that these white people were, were coming along. Very obviously a visible minority, those who stand out, those who are very much on display. Jesus said, we don't light a lamp to hide it, but we put it where it can be seen. We put it on display. The very function and design is to bring light to darkness. Not only were we a novelty and on display as the first white family to live in that community, but we were on display as a Christian family. And everything that was being observed about us was not only this is the way Makuas do it, but this is the way Christians do it. This is the way a Christian man treats his wife. This is the way Christian parents interface with their children. This is the way Christians go to the bathroom and go to the market and whatever else was a part of our daily life there. And every detail of our lives were being watched, being read. And that's the very nature, the very function that you and I have as light. To be put on display, to be visible to all, to recognize that we too are being watched, we are being read. And everything about us declares a witness to our relationship with the Lord in one way or another, in positive ways or otherwise. This is about our identity rather than any activity that we might participate in. It's about who we are. It's about our design and function. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses. This isn't about an activity that we opt into or out of, that we decide we'll participate in or we'll pass today. This is about who we are. It's not a light bulb that we can turn on or off depending on our needs. This is design, function, and nature of who we are 24-7 in our homes, on our commute, at our desk, when we pick up groceries, every dynamic and aspect of our lives, we serve as light and witness. And my conviction is that we need to, to up our sensitivity and our intentionality to being light in a dark world. A couple of years ago now, I was having a, a fall group debrief of a number of our students who had participated in mission teams uh, over the summer. And uh, one of the students made this comment. 
he said, what would it look like if we prepared for March the way that we prepare for May? What he meant by that is we finalize our student mission teams by the first week of December every year. And then from the first week in January throughout the second semester, those teams meet together every week to pray together, to prepare their hearts and minds together for May, for that month of service that they'll spend in, in Calcutta, India, or the Dominican Republic, or a Somali refugee camp in Kenya. And there's a great amount of intentionality and preparation for that month of service, for those weeks of service. And they build into each other's lives, and they learn about each other, and they love on each other, and they pray deeply in preparation for that time of service, for that period where they're going to step out of our context into another context and shine their light in a context that is obviously very uh, overtly dark in many, in many contexts. And the student was saying, what would it look like if we prepared for March or for February or for December or for tomorrow or for next week every day with the same kind of intensity, intensity and intentionality that we prepare for that month of May in those places around the world? What would that look like? What dynamic of shining light would our world see? Would our environment here at Tyndale experience if we brought that kind of sensitivity and intentionality to being light in a dark world? The purpose of our shining, Jesus says, for displaying our good works is that our Father would receive praise and be glorified. Well, how does that happen? Generally, when we do good, we get praised. Do a good job, get the pat on the back. We get recognized. Well, we can certainly redirect that praise that we receive to the Father, and that's good. But I would suggest that it's more than that, that our very works should be obviously of God. Are our accomplishments simply a result of our best efforts and our collective resource? Or are they results that are obviously bigger than you and me? We've been taught, even in Christian circles, to, to set goals. Goals that are realistic, that are measurable, that are attainable, and there's a bunch of other dynamics that should be uh, marks of our goals. And what I'm suggesting today is that we scrap that model. Throw it out. Ephesians 3.20, which our brother read earlier, Paul says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. That's why I love setting the missions budget for our students every year because it's so obviously beyond our collective resource. As we plan and strategize and set our goals, what's the God factor in those? As we work with our student leaders, which we'll be doing in less than three weeks at the beginning of each year, yes, only three weeks, 
at the beginning of each year, this is one of the dynamics that we try to bring into play as they set their goals and their plans and their strategies for what they'd like to see accomplished in the year to come. Some of you have been going through your annual review process and having to set goals and plans for the year to come. What I encourage the students to do, and I encourage you this morning, is to build in what I call a God factor to those plans, to those goals, to those strategies. What's the God factor? What's obviously beyond your skill set, beyond your abilities, beyond your strengths, beyond our collective resource in those plans and those goals? What are we depending on God for in our plans and goals in this coming year? If what is accomplished is simply reflective of our own strength and collective resource, then you and I are the ones who are going to be getting the praise. You and I are the ones who are going to get it, be getting the acknowledgement. And we can redirect that to the Father. But if we can build in the God factor, if we can trust him and depend on him beyond what we can think or even imagine, what he delights to do in our midst, then he is the one that will obviously get the recognition. If the decisions and plans that we are making are not moving us into greater dependence on God, I would suggest that we need to reevaluate the decisions and plans that we're making. If the decisions and plans that we are making do not move us into greater dependence upon God, then I believe we need to reevaluate the plans and decisions that we're making. Let's pray together. In the wonderfully multicultural environment that is Toronto and Tyndale, we may forget, Father, that you have designed us to be a visible minority, to shine your light, Jesus who lives within us, into dark places, to display your power at work within us such that you receive the praise that's due your name. Help us today and in the school year that lies ahead to trust you for greater things, to serve out of a place of utter dependence on you rather than simply out of our own strength and skill set and resource. That as the world watches the work accomplished at Tyndale, they can't help but acknowledge that you are in this place and alive in us. For your glory we pray. Amen.